morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to the TT Podcast. This week, we sat down for a chat with Eleanor Barker, team pursuit gold medalist in Rio and multiple time British, European and world championship winning track cyclist. Yeah, it's been really lovely to speak to Eleanor uh, this evening at the time of recording. Uh, we had a really good chat and she gave us some really good insight into her previous experiences at the Olympics, uh, possible what's going to happen going forward uh, with an eye on Tokyo, obviously, and then what she gets up to off the bike as well and any future plans she might have. Yeah, as um, as Tom said, it was an absolute pleasure speaking with Eleanor. She's such a positive, sincere person and um, we hope you enjoy the episode. Eleanor, welcome to the TT Podcast. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Very well, thank you. Nobody's asked that back to us yet, so that's nice. Very well. Nobody's asked you back. You need to get some nicer guests. Well, he asks me every week how I am and I never <laughs> ask I never ask him back, so... <laughs> um, uh, sorry, I was just going to say, um, where are you at the moment? I'm at my house in Manchester. House training, you know, how's it? How's everything going at the moment? Is it a bit difficult or a bit easier now? Um, it's all right, actually. Training is fine in terms of restrictions. I can train yeah. with all of my teammates on the road. We have been able to for a long time. Um, we can go in and use the track in the gym. It's just the monotony now um, and not having any races is, yeah, it's quite hard. Um, and I absolutely love training. I really do. And I, I don't find it that hard to motivate myself through big training blocks without races. Um, it's kind of, you have to get used to that as a track rider. But it is kind of getting to the point now where it's it's got to be for something, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's been a long time between races now. Is it um is it starting to ramp up quite a lot now? And and kind of how do you split it between track and road? Um, so at the moment I don't at all. Um, I'm pretty much 100% a track rider now. Um, and I'm lucky that I'm I'm riding for a team that's really really flexible. Uh, have absolutely no expectations of me, which is why I joined, I suppose. Um in an Olympic year, which is now the second Olympic year. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm, at the moment, I'm completely 100% full gas track rider. So obviously before we, we come on to Tokyo, I'd want to kind of just jump back and look at Rio, which was your first Olympics. One gold medal, set a world record, bettered it twice over. It's not a bad debut, is it? Pretty good race, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Had a good time there. <laughs> yeah, I think... God, it just, uh, it's easy to kind of look back at rose tinted glasses, but I've tried really, really hard to remember that the the weeks and months before that, it wasn't just a case of like waiting to win, I suppose. There was a lot of doubt in there and there's a lot of um, bad training sessions. And that's what I'm kind of trying to remember in the most positive way possible. Um, trying to remember this time around that, uh, yeah, a, a bad day now doesn't mean that that won't happen again. Um, it doesn't mean that that kind of thing that feels so, so impossible until it happens isn't possible. And um, so obviously it's been delayed by a year, but are there much differences in the build-up to assuming everything goes fine with Tokyo? Is, are you noticing a lot of differences now with the build-up to Tokyo than you were to Rio? I can't believe it's five years ago, but five years ago. I can't believe it's been five years either. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, kind of. I don't know it's hard to say yet I think a lot of the things that we'd be actually involved with face-to-face -face, um with Olympic like the, the the run into an Olympics haven't actually happened mm -hmm. yet 
So things like um, the kitting out is a really big deal. Just going to get your bag of kit, there's a whole day about it. Um, and you go and get sized up. There's all sorts of like really fun little things around it. Um, and yeah, all the sponsors really make a huge deal of it. But half of the point is to get a huge amount of people, a huge amount of athletes in one place. So yeah. whether or not that's going to happen, I absolutely have no idea yet. Um, <laughs> although it wouldn't be due for a few months, so I really don't know. And it's all those kind of things that'll be that are really exciting and don't just happen for any other competition. Um, the kind of thing that are really unique that I just don't know what they'll look like now. Will we just get our bags in the post or something? I don't know. So at what point do you start training on the like super fast aero kit and the the bike that you're are you using the bike now for training that you're going to be using in Tokyo? Yes. Yeah. I have a bike. Um they're kind of a surprisingly last minute thing actually. And it's always kind of like that. And that your bike is like I mean, a skin suit or a helmet or whatever doesn't make such a massive difference to how you how you ride. Um, but obviously the bike makes a huge difference to how you interact with the bike. So I've always mm. been surprised how late that we've left it. Um, and I think that's maybe actually been a, a, a bonus, I suppose, in a little way, that actually now we've ended up having a lot more time to get used to the bikes. And because we haven't got any competition, we're not switching between um, Olympic bikes and then the old bikes that we're just using for... Um, any non-Olympic competitions it's just fast bike from here on out into the game so we've got a lot of time to get used to it so it's really interesting you say that because obviously the geometry of every bike no matter how similar they are obviously you, you're changing between training on road and then train, training on track bikes I mean I recently upgraded my road bike and I've already fallen off twice so <laughs> just getting used to the geometry has completely thrown me yeah it's amazing as well how um so I ride I've got two different road bikes and they're two different um bikes because I've got one from British Cycling and one from uh, Techers who are my road team are already specialized and trying to get those two bikes to match is just impossible so I've got one that I really like and the other one that I'm basically just trying to force to make work um, and they're both the same size bike it should it should be fine but whatever the subtle differences are it's just yeah it's not the same and I think even people find that when they've got um, a race bike and a spare bike that the spare bike just doesn't feel the same even though it is the same bike and it's got the same measurements and everything. It's just, it's just not the same. Yeah. So it takes quite a lot sometimes to get used to something. Do you find that sometimes there's so many little things to get in check that there's no real time to start feeling nervous about the races or is that a naive way to look at it? Oh no, I definitely find time. There's definitely time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, probably the most nerve wracking thing before in the fix is actually weirdly how much time you have because, um, so we'll have a taper, we'll taper off our training um, for the Olympics in a way that we don't do for any other race because you'd lose so much fitness, but for the Olympics, it's worth it. So gradually you just train less and less, but the idea isn't to replace that with anything else. It's just to rest in the time that you would otherwise be training. And so you end up having all this time and thinking like, what am I doing with my life? I'm literally just sitting around being nervous for a month. <laughs> it's so stressful. Um, and it's not like we're not training at all. Obviously there are training sessions going on, but yeah, by the time that we get there, it's significantly less than um, than we used to. And you actually have a lot of time to think about it. I think that's something that we forget as kind of cycling fans is that 50% of training is recovery, uh, which is just a lot of mental headspace to absorb what you're doing and what you've got coming up in your calendar. Yeah, so one of the, I think one of the things that's actually quite hard about being an athlete, but surprising, um, like surprisingly hard, is just how much time you need to spend resting and just relaxing and intentionally not doing things 
um, which a lot of the time when you're in, in a really hard training block is absolutely fine. Um, but I think because you're so tired that it's all you want to do anyway is just sit on the sofa or go to bed early or whatever. But I think once you get a little bit of energy, when you have a bit more rest and you get closer to a competition, you actually think, oh, I could be doing something with this energy. Um, you get quite so angsty, don't really you? Hard. You just want to get back out there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's really hard to actually just just rest and just sit with your feet up. I know I've seen interviews where you've been asked a lot about kind of how you celebrated in Rio and everything. And I think that's kind of well published and well expected how an athlete would celebrate a gold medal in Rio. Um, what I'm what I'm interested in is kind of what's going through your mind, not before the race or after the race, but kind of during the race. So you've got those, you know, four minutes of team pursuit, 16 laps. Are you thinking, God, this is fast. Are you thinking, please don't clip someone's wheel here or, you, or is there just is it just so fast that there's no time to think about anything and it's over before you can even absorb what's happening um I mean the only thing I really clearly remember thinking in Rio is that um so if you watch the final back I I start losing the wheel a little bit I'm I'm third rider um and so yeah myself getting over the line is really really important and I start dropping the wheel a little bit and I think I lose maybe maybe a wheel length in the last half of lap but at the time, it felt like it was about <laughs> the length of a lorry or something. <laughs> and I was literally in my head thinking, oh, my God, I've lost this now. Like, I've lost this for my whole team. They're going to cross the line first and I'm going to cross the line second. Um, and oh, it just felt awful. So the first feeling that I felt crossing the line was just relief for like a second. It was just like, <laughs> oh, we didn't lose. Like, oh, I didn't lose it. And then I was like, oh, hang on. That means we won. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This is the thing. I was looking back at it and there was obviously so much pressure on the sense that you obviously set the world record in qualifying and you probably thought, right, we're flying here. Then the US go and better your world records. This is a US team that's containing, well, former time trial world champion, Chloe Digert. Um, Then you obviously set an, another world record in the next round. It's you, You're obviously knowing, you know that the US is strong. And I imagine when you start losing the wheel there, you're like, right, they're going to punish me for this. Oh, it wasn't so much they're going to punish me for it. It was just, I know how hard everyone's worked and how much they really want it. And to feel like it would be, I suppose my sole responsibility would be would be pretty difficult to take. Um, but it's, it is a team event. I mean, you need to get there together. Um, and I, I think that, yeah, there's, there is quite a lot of responsibility that comes with that. To, it's not just my dream, it's everybody else's dream as well. Um, but I mean... It's not like I could have done anything else. I was trying <laughs> as hard as I possibly could. Oh, it's all right. You did it anyway, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Thank> God. <laughs> and um, then um, you did enjoy Rio afterwards, did you? You got a chance to do that, which obviously whatever happens in Tokyo will not be the same experience either. No, it really won't. Um, yeah, I think I probably had a fairly different experience uh, after the racing to a lot of athletes. I think most people kind of just went out and partied um which is absolutely fair enough that's what I do yeah <laughs> well I kind of I was really really torn because I was like well do I want to just go out and celebrate now while I feel like this or do I want to be awake in the daytime and go and see all of the things that I really really want to see in Rio um, had you ever been before never been before no, no but my uh older brother and sister had both been um my brother actually spent a few months there once he went when the uh and the football world cup was there oh um, yeah stunning yeah 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 so you kind of base himself out of there um but my family have kind of I don't know if it's in our blood or how I brought up but we're all really really into traveling and I feel like 
there's so few chances to actually go out and see the place that we go to race in. Sometimes mm-hmm. we might get a few hours here or there, but it's rarely enough to actually go and see something like really, really exciting. Um, so I basically just went, I went around like a tourist. Um, Christ the Redeemer, yeah. everything yeah. like that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, so I partied a little bit, but I was far more interested in being awake in the daytime. Am I right in thinking that Tokyo, you almost have like a 48 hour window there. You've got to kind of be in, do your race straight back to the airport. Yeah, I've, I've heard that as well, actually. Yeah. So does that mean you're not going to have a chance to take your, you take your camera down to Osaka, see the cherry blossoms down to Mount Fuji? Oh, I mean, I'm so glad that I hadn't actually, I hadn't got around to planning exactly what I was going to do yet. But <laughs> I mean, I wasn't going to get on the flight home that we were supposed to get on. I was planning on staying there for a long time. Um, so yeah, that's pretty devastating, to be honest. Um, so obviously Tokyo is going to be big this year. I'd ask you what races you have in your sights. Yeah. <laughs> that goes without saying, really. Um, I'd ask you what race you have in your sights. I think one of the ones that I think a lot of cycling fans are really interested in seeing is the Madison being raced for the first time uh, by the women at the Olympics. Um, I know that yourself and Laura Kenny uh, got the bronze medal at the European Championships in that in November. Um, how are you kind of preparing for that? Because that's obviously, it's a 30 kilometer race, completely different to the team pursuit, which obviously you guys will be going for as well. Um, so I'm actually reserved for that race. Um, so most of my preparations will be for team pursuit. Uh, I I'll have a little bit of a involvement in the, in Madison preparations, but, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it would, it would kind of be stupid at this point in time to really focus on that when actually my main event now and, yeah, my opportunity to get gold medal is a team suit. Yeah, that was that. Okay, I'm glad you've answered that because I was quite confused as to how you would kind of juggle your training between an endurance race and then one that's like the team pursuit, which isn't as endurance based. Yeah, team pursuit's a funny one. It's kind of like the worst distance, but it's still very much um, an endurance event. And I mean, you just have to look at like previous British winners of team pursuit have also gone on to win Tour de France's. Mm. So yeah. there is that capability in there. Um, and the Madison is also only about 35 minutes, which, I mean, it is a lot longer than a team pursuit, but it's not, it's not in a different universe kind of thing. Um, so actually phys- like physiologically, they're not the most different races in the world. Um, and there is that kind of element of like on and off and taking your rest and that sort of thing. Um, it's, I suppose, a, just a, a much more spaced out version or a more extreme version. I, I get that. Like, I, my background is in uh, long long distance running. When I, I used to be not too bad, not anymore. Um, and I would always tell people that the fifteen hundred was absolutely the worst event. Like, it's hard, far harder than a marathon. Like, just the pure distance doesn't necessarily make it difficult. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> well, there's there's something in that, isn't it? Because how long does the fifteen hundred take to run? Uh, for me, or for. <laughs> <laughs> just roughly <laughs> i don't even know uh the world record's 327 something i think right okay yeah so i think it, yeah in terms of time i think the like the crossover yeah i suppose you're just like you're at your, it's not that different the men's team pursuit record sorry that is the men's world record as well is, is what yeah. 344 so it's not that different yeah yeah i think that's just like it's one of the hardest amount of time to go hard for because it's it's such a knife edge when it comes to pacing that if you just get it slightly wrong, it's awful. Whereas in yeah. <laughs> in a sprint race, it's over if you get it wrong. There's no pacing involved, really. It's um, all anaerobic, isn't it? So, yeah. Yeah, and in a marathon, you've got time to correct yourself or yeah, or you hit the wall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah you can sort of feel into it not that i've ever run a marathon i don't know what i'm talking about <laughs> well, neither am i but yeah <laughs> with with the team pursuit um how possible do you think it is that the four minute mark will be broken this summer I mean, do you back yourself, back yourself, Eleanor. <laughs> um, that would be 10 seconds faster than anyone's ever gone before, which is quite a lot. Um, well, I was, because I was looking at it when it, when it was first moved to a 4,000 meter event, uh, the first world record set was 440, 109, which is what I've got written down here. Um, and obviously 30 seconds were taken off that. That was in July, 2013. And by Rio, you'd taken 30 seconds off it. So, at what point does it begin to plateau out these times? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think the when, when an event's so new, I think the first world record is pretty much just the first person to to have a go. <laughs> it was well, the, the first. Uh, it was the it was the Italians. Uh, I can't remember uh, where it okay. was, and they the four forty three in a qualifying round, and then four forty in the. I think it might be. I think it was the European Championships that year. But okay, um, so I think the first time like the times fell really, really quickly. And then it kind of settled mm. at 16 and loads of teams were doing a 416 for quite a while. Um, and then one day the Australians just did a random 413. <laughs> no one could get close to it. They couldn't do it again. Um, and then no one got close to that for, for a while again until we got to Rio. And then... And does yeah, it always so work that these world records, you know, if they are going to fall, will fall at the end of an Olympic cycle? Because that's just how it's geared. That's what you're going for. <laughs> Generally, yeah. I mean, it's where yeah. everyone like pulls out the stops, where everyone's on their best form. So yeah, generally, that is when they fall. Um, I don't think the four-minute mark will go this time, but I definitely think it's possible. Okay, that's an interesting. Yeah, interesting. Answer. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> four minutes is is quick. <laughs> it's really quick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. But then, I mean, nobody would ever guess that the that the Danish would have done the time that they did at Berlin last year um, mm. in a team pursuit. Anything can happen, I suppose. Well, this is the thing. Do you think the way kind of training's been geared over the last year means that people have more time to focus on those specific events? Like the riders aren't racing much else. They're not doing road seasons as much. Um, do you think it means that obviously, I don't know what I'm saying here, but does it mean that people are more focused on that specific event which will by then mean that the four minute mark is more achievable when we get to Tokyo or am I being very hopeful? And um, No, I totally see what you mean. I think it's going to be really interesting this year, just generally across all sports, because I think every country has ended up having a different experience and how that affects everybody is quite hard to tell at the moment. Um, and it's, I think it will help some people who maybe have had distractions taken away and then that's all that they can focus on. And maybe it won't help people who actually really need the distraction of racing and aren't don't really enjoy training that much. Um, so it's kind of hard to generalize and say, yeah, everyone's had a great time. Everyone's <laughs> going to be flying. Um, because some people, it's just not the ideal training environment. And if it was, we'd probably live like this forever um, and just never go racing and only, only ever train. So that's moves on to something else I wanted to ask you about was that obviously training for a race or training for the Olympics is as much a mental thing as it is a physical thing. Um, I know that with everyone trains in these kind of four year cycles. And then when you suddenly add an extra year onto that, it destabilizes not only your kind of physical preparation, but also where your mindset is mentally. 
how have you found it in the last year? I know that you do a lot of work with um, mental health charities and you're an ambassador for Sporting Minds. Um, you know, how, how, how do you think it's been for, for athletes kind of getting used to that? Um, I mean, I can only really speak on my own, um, my own experience in the last year. And I'd be completely lying if I said it would have been 100% straightforward. And yeah, I found it really surprising that, so I, on the day that um, the Olympics was cancelled, I went on Instagram a couple of hours after the announcement and I just saw loads of people posting things like new year, same goal, going to smash it anyway. And I was like, what are you really not bothered by this? Like I've been so upset. And I was like, Oh, you're just gonna like, act like it literally doesn't matter to you when this race happens or when this event happens, um, because you'll just be ready if it happens tomorrow, if it happens in three years time. Um, Cause there's so much mental preparation that goes into it. So yeah, initially I was really, really devastated and to be honest, at times I've, I've gone the other way and actually thought this has been really positive in a way to um, like to have this chance to just train without fear of selection or um, races going badly and just really, really do the work and not be, yeah, not be worried about by looking bad, I suppose. Um, but yeah, at times it has been pretty difficult. I think I've, I've probably had three really bad days in the last year where I've just thought, oh my God, this is just endless. I, I remember one day last summer just feeling like I was absolutely flogging myself, training harder than I'd ever trained before and thinking this is just going to be every day now for the next 14 months um, until I get to race at the Olympics, which should have been happening, I think, three months from that day or two months from that day even. Um, so it's quite hard to feel like I'd gotten through all the hard parts of the Olympic cycle and then all we had left was the Olympics the big one and everything was about to happen everything that was exciting was just about to happen and then it was just gone um so yeah it it's, it's quite hard to summarize to be honest because it was quite hard but then I felt like I also adjusted quite quickly um and this is just kind of the the new reality and it's it's sort of pointless to think oh what would have happened if it had happened last year what um yeah what what would be different what would I be doing now instead because yeah, 20, 2020 or 2021, I still want to be here. I guess you can you can take comfort in the fact that it's been the same for absolutely everybody that's going to be involved in it. Well, yeah, yes and no, really. I've, yeah, taking comfort in that, but also that like how incredibly lucky I am that it's happened now rather than ruining the experience of my first Olympics, which I think unfortunately mm-hmm. has of course. happened for a lot of people. Um, or there's actually been so many people who retired because they were hanging on for one last Olympics, really, really going for one big push. And when you're in that, that mindset, another year is huge. So actually I feel so lucky to have had it happen just kind of in the middle of my career. Um, and actually looking back, maybe just sliding it by a year or two, it's not the end of the world because even if, uh, even if it had happened last year, I'd still have gone training today. Um, I'd still be riding a bike. I'd still be pretty much living the same life. So to try and look at it like that was quite helpful as well. And does it make a big difference as well that obviously we touched on earlier, the team pursuit, it's a team event, the team pursuit. Um, you've obviously got three or four other people going through exactly the same thing to fall back on. There must've been some messages in the WhatsApp group when the Olympics were canceled and, you know, you can all, at least it's a shared experience. Um, we actually gave each other a little bit of space for a while. because didn't really know what to, what to say to one another because yeah, not being able to see each other, it's quite hard to, to gauge how everybody's feeling about it um and I think actually even just within our group 
it probably did help some people um, because we had a few people that had had some quite serious injuries last year and it's looking like they were going to be fine. But I think for the individuals in that situation, they might have actually been thinking, okay, now it's definitely going to be fine. Now I've got loads yeah. of time to do whatever this is um, and a hundred percent get it sorted. So it was quite hard to know actually what to go to the group with. Um, so yeah, it's not like we didn't speak or like we ignored each other, but yeah, I, I can't say that I shared any profound words and um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> didn't get any back either. <laughs> um, let's park the Olympics to one side. I imagine you do enough time thinking and talking about that in any case. Um, kind of alongside your Team GB duties, uh, one thing that you've done recently was the guest edit of Cycling Weekly. Now, if you don't mind me reading your words back to you, uh, for the sake of our listeners that haven't had a chance to pick up a copy, you said in your foreword, uh, the best thing I can do to promote women's cycling is to be good at my job and put on a show that people want to watch. The best thing you can do as a journalist is to report on that show, not the inequalities, but on the racing, the drama and the action. Obviously, with your edition, there was a very big focus on kind of raising the profile of women in cycling. Do you feel that currently we're at a bit of a turning point with kind of the coverage of women's cycling and, and its profile? I do. Yeah, I really do. I think there's so much momentum gaining at the moment. Um, and I even just to look back, I mean, I've not had, I mean, yeah, like I said, I'm in the middle of my career. So to look back at the difference from now and when I started, it's incredible. It's a totally different environment. And it's, it's so nice to be part of that and to really actually fully be able to appreciate it um, and everything that's happening. And yeah, I think we're at the point now where um, I suppose the point that I wanted to make with that, uh, with that article or with that, with that um, issue rather, it was to say, look, I don't want to have to be saying, no, actually women's cycling is really interesting. You should watch it because people have been saying that for what, 20 years now or something like that. The people who haven't started watching it or haven't started reading or engaging with it yet probably aren't going to. So why don't we just engage with the people who are already interested and give them some really good quality content on the thing that they're really interested in? Um, and that was kind of my, yeah, my sort of agenda for the for the issue. I think it was clear as well with in your forward particularly that obviously the, the pay gaps and the inequalities in the finances of it are glaring and obvious and need to be confronted. But I think you were more interested in focusing on obviously raising the profile and showcasing the talent that is there and saying, look, and obviously don't let me put words in your mouth completely speak over me if I'm doing this, but saying, hey, look, if we raise the profile and give this the engagement it deserves, all of that will come with that. Exactly that. Yeah, that's exactly it. Because I think if you if you went to any business person and you just walked into the street and you said, which cycling team would you like to sponsor? If you had to sponsor a team tomorrow, they would go for the ones that they've heard of. They'd go for the ones that they're interested in and that they see winning races um, and that they know the personalities of the riders. And so why not just bring women cycling to that level? Why not just expose all of those characters and all of those races and all of those wins and let people make their own decisions, let people, let sponsors see all that and then decide to put their money into it. You're preaching to the converted here because at the end of the day, it is exactly the same product. Uh, it's just a shame, obviously, that it still hasn't got the exposure that it needs. I mean, I watched Amstel Gold at the weekend, both races, and the finishes to both of them were oh, such good racing. Yeah, <laughs> so good. Yeah, I think that's probably one of my favorite races to watch because it's always like that. I think that climb into that finishing straight is just the perfect, um, 
like the, I think the best finishes are when there's like a small group off the front and then the pack is yeah. chasing them and it's like oh will they won't they are they going to sprint soon enough and that was kind of the situation in both races and I think that course just lends itself to it perfectly um, and unfortunately sorry. we're moving on to my specialist subject here that hill and Philip Gilbert winning every race up it he ever rides so <laughs> <laughs> but I, I agree it just makes for a fantastic finish if it's Amstel Gold or the World Championships were there in 2012 as well obviously this is what I thought I was watching it and I was I was looking at obviously Longo Borghini and Cassian Nui-Adoma kind of eyeballing each other towards the finish and I was like did you guys learn nothing from Vanderpoel last year like just uh, go get on with it get to the line <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was painful to watch, really, wasn't it? But also incredible to watch and oh. yeah, wondering who's going to do what next. <clears throat> I thought Pitcock and Wout Van Aert were going to do exactly the same thing as well. And um, who was it with them? The Bora rider? Shackman. Um, Shackman, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but they dropped him anyway in the sprint. But I can't believe, I mean, that's not what we're here to talk about, but there was so much happened in that finish. that <laughs> was uh... oh, Incredible, it's such yeah. a good difference. Um, actually, while we're talking about the Ardennes, I have a very quick question to ask you. I know that you raced Flesh Wallonne in 2017, was it? A few years ago. Done your research. I think it was a I think it was 2015, maybe. Yeah, that climb at the end of Flesh Wallonne, can you still feel it in your legs now? <laughs> oh god. Oh, it's horrible. I have nightmares about that climb. <laughs> it was just I have nightmares about that climb and I've never seen it. <laughs> It is worse than it looks on TV. I mean, it is like trying to scale the wall of your house or something. It's horrific. And yeah, I mean, I, I think I just about managed to make it to the bottom of that climb on the coattails of the front group um, when I was on there. And then suddenly it was just gone. Um, well, it was just like, it was like a bomb had gone off in the middle of the group. Like there was just people everywhere and everyone just doing their own thing to try and get up it basically. Like there's no, there was no case of, tactics or anything like that it was just grind your way up as fast as you can however you finish that's that's how you'll finish throwing the bike across the road yeah, <laughs> yeah. um let's talk more about kind of road racing then um you've obviously signed with techers who i've seen described as the coolest team in british cycling you have a <laughs> multicolored jersey you've got t-rex branding you've got an s-works bike um obviously clearly got the flexibility to train as you see fit it seems to be the perfect team for you at the moment it really is yeah and I think um as much as like god the kit is just lovely and all the sponsors are just are just fantastic um and they, they put a lot into the team they really do I think what I also really needed is that it's it's a really social group of people and also kind of uh yeah people with diverse interests I suppose um and I mean the team is run by uh, Alec who, who's also a DJ um, and there's a lot of people on the team that work in different jobs everyone's into a little bit of mountain biking or a bit of cross riding or um, yeah all sorts of different things and I just think having that community outside of British cycling was really important to me in a in a um, in an Olympic year so when I was thinking about what to do in 2017 I wasn't sure whether to carry on um, with the team that I'd been with in 2019 um, or whether to go for an offer that I'd had for a different team, which didn't really seem quite like the right fit. And I, I just wasn't really sure because I didn't want to overcommit to something that I wasn't, I couldn't actually deliver on, um, particularly if those teams wanted me to race, which is fair enough. Um, and I didn't think I'd be able to race on the road in 2020. Um, or do I ride for no team at all, which is what most of my track team um, teammates do. 
and I was kind of torn thinking like well I don't want to let anybody down but I also I, I just I really really need that community to be part of outside of British cycling because if it all goes wrong one day that's my entire existence in cycling um and I just need to I don't know I need to exist outside of it kind of I suppose just in case but just to kind of keep that social part of it in there and so that it's not just so completely high performance driven all the time if you're not enjoying it then it's just it can be impossible I feel at any level um obviously at your level it's um performance is a big factor but if you're not enjoying it you're not going to perform at your best anyway I think it's a bit of a cliche but it certainly rings true exactly yeah, yeah. I think um it's certainly not that I'm not enjoying my time with British Cycling I really mm. do but I think everybody's so focused and so performance driven um that it's not fun all the time whereas when I speak to tech my techist teammates they're cycling because they love it um I mean a lot of them have got a nine-to-five job or have got something else going on in their lives and it's a thing that they make time for um and a thing that they just really really love to to do and to watch on tv and to talk about um and be involved in and yeah I just think that's nice to have that reminder of why I started as well if on days I feel like I'm not enjoying it too much I think it's interesting what you're saying there about it being a fun team. I think I saw a video the other day of Alec riding a crit race in skinny jeans. So I think that kind of is, is quite a good symbol of what the the team ethos is all about. Yeah, and I mean, they care about winning. Like everyone there has got ambitions, but I think they care about having fun a little bit more. And that's, yeah, it's really nice to be part of. They don't take themselves too seriously and enjoy that. How did he do? Uh, he was trying to win it. I don't think he won. <laughs> He had a crash, actually, didn't he? He might have. Well, he's got, he wouldn't get too much road rash from that then, would he? It's not. That's probably the best thing to wear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I might think about it. <laughs> well, you turn up in Tokyo in jeans. <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of moving forwards, kind of this is going to seem unimaginable to you, but in a kind of post-Tokyo, post-Olympics world, how do you envisage your kind of road racing adapting, like with, with techers or kind of generally what races you'd like to target? Um, I mean, I've got some decisions to make there because I, I really do miss racing. And I think it's been quite hard being a track rider this year because it seems like we're the, the one corner of the sport that's still really suffering. Um, whereas every other sport, every other discipline, because they're outside, they're allowed to carry on. So it's been kind of difficult, but also incredibly inspiring watching all these races on TV and just thinking, oh God, I just want to race. Um, my original plan when Tokyo was in 2020 was to try and get um try and get on a road team perhaps actually fully commit to road for, for a couple of years um do a little bit of track but I'd be like 90% a road rider 10% a track rider that kind of thing um and then come back two years out from Paris and have that um that whole selection uh selection window which is two years long um be completely focused on the track but I just wanted to see what I'd be like even to just have one season on the road where I'd actually prepared because I've never ever prepared for a road race before. It's just something that I've done after preparing for a four minute event all winter. Um, and I like the idea of having, having a year to try and like kind of find my feet, having a year to try and find some results and then coming back, keeping it short and sweet, really, really enjoying it. And then coming back to what I'm good at. Now there's only a three year cycle. And so I'm really kind of wondering if one year is actually enough. Um, I'm not totally sure it is because most of the races going on now, I haven't actually ever raced them before. So the chances of me just rocking up to my first ever Amstel goal, say, and having a good result is pretty slim. Um, I need to get a bit more experience under my belt. So 
I I don't know what it's going to look like for me yet. I've got some, yeah, I've got some serious thinking to do. I was just thinking, obviously, the, one of the first things that happens after the Olympics is Paris-Roubaix. None of the women have experience riding Paris-Roubaix. You'd be starting on the same same page as them. <laughs> that is true. There are a few cobble climbs in Manchester. I could go and have a go. Um, <laughs> they also do have a lot more experience than me in general, though. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure Tekas is going to get a is going to get a ride. An to Paris. <laughs> <laughs> Would be great. <laughs> in that case, Eleanor, thank you so much for uh, giving us your time. Um, we will be rooting for you, shouting at the TV for you when uh, when Tokyo comes around, and uh, best of luck with everything. Thank you very much. I'd love yeah. to speak to you guys.